Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. This is around episode 58. This is should be the last in our ongoing series on exclusion within the anarchist space, although I have a feeling that this is going to become an ongoing uh, topic of interest. Uh, today, I'm in a long-distance phone conversation with Andy. How are you doing, Andy? Uh, I'm doing okay, thank you. Um, just in the middle of a, a big uh, research project at the moment on existentialism, uh, but taking some time off on that to uh, to revisit some stuff I've worked on before about uh, exclusion both in uh, in anarchism and in uh, uh, in neoliberal capitalism in the current stage of capitalism in particular. Well, that's exciting because you know the conversations up till now have mostly been about personal experience. And so I'm definitely hoping to round this out with a bit more of a theoretical uh, context. So I guess uh, tell me a little bit about your interest insofar as that you're researching this topic. Well, uh, I've, I've come at this kind of topic from a number of different angles. Uh, one of them is the question of uh, how, is it possible and how is it possible to have uh, forms of uh, forms of social life which are not based on the types of constitutive exclusion which are fundamental in hierarchical systems. Because in a hierarchical system, you always have that division between you know, the conformist and the deviant, the, uh, the people who are living by the system's norms and the people who aren't. Um, and uh, anarchism aspires to be something that doesn't do that, even if in practice it often falls short. But... I think to a degree it's able to do without those forms of exclusion because of the structure it's based on. Now, I also come to the question in terms of the position of the excluded within, you know, how, why is it that we have people who uh, who feel they're excluded from, from mainstream society who are attracted to ideas like anarchism? And uh, also the question of uh, the ways in which exclusion has kind of reappeared in anarchist spaces or intensified in anarchist spaces recently because of political shifts uh, possibly derived from the wider context. Well, you're, so, yeah, you're, you're racing ahead uh, just to respond to the first point that you were making. Are you uh, deriving your conversation around exclusion or or I guess the, the formation of society sort of as a post-primitivist set of conversations or from a pre-primitivist? In other words, anarchism obviously had 100 years of existence before primitivism came onto the stage. Where, where was the history, as far as you're concerned, of where a non-exclusionary uh, space existed in the theoretical constructs of anarchism prior to primitivism? Fairly clearly in Stirner. Um I mean, Stirner is very much opposed to the um, the idea of kind of values attached to particular categories, values attached to spooks, uh, and therefore the idea of societies that are constructed around some commonality of the nation or humanity or whatever, which then necessarily excludes its opposite, you know, the other man or the foreigner or the, the other of the group. Um, so he's already trying to work beyond that. Um, I think the aspiration is there. Uh, actually, actually, how would you dis distinguish between Stirner and the liberal subject that was constructed, you know, in the same time frame? Um, I think the uh, the liberal subject is um, the freedom of the liberal subject is a uh, is conceived in terms of the ability to act on um, what Freud would call the superego, to act on a moral imperative 
separate from desire and separate from social and worldly influences. And this subject was considered to be not free if they were acting on anything other than pure moral duty. So in practice, although liberalism was meant to be a philosophy of, uh, of freeing people from, for example, dependence on tradition, it rapidly turns into kind of subordination to the insistence that everyone be this particular type of subject. And of course, being this particular type of subject reintroduces uh, normativity and the, and the idea that there are people who conform to this well and there are others who are deviant and the deviant have to be excluded or punished or reconditioned into the right type of person. Um, and Stirner is really attacking that in liberalism using some of the arsenal he's getting from Hegel so he's, uh, and kind of via Hegel from Kant. So it's coming from that tradition and critiquing it. You know, I, I often, when it comes to these ideas, try to avoid referring to the sort of source person, especially if yeah. they have a name, and instead try to refer to like a particular body of ideas or an idea that I like and I try to modernize it. So one of the things I really liked about this book that we put out, and I didn't exactly catch it when we first got started on it, but I'm really com convinced by now, is this book that we did called Enemies of Society. And mm -hmm. at the heart of it is a, a basically a set of translations of French egoists who are trying to put Stringer's ideas into practice. Yeah. And what I really like about the book and 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 really like at least about that era of uh, of egoists is that they were that it seemed like they had come up with an idea of a society that that there's a transition that happens when you perhaps you know surpass Dunbar's number or or however it is that it comes into into being, but that there's a distinction between society as an abstraction as a construct that's you know larger than than you and I can sort of wrap our minds around and not society and I, I bring that up mostly because I I feel like that's the place where I I find some affinity for, for egoists yeah. is somewhere in here. Yeah. But, um, but really what, when we're talking about the liberal subject, the liberal subject seems to be, uh, somehow connected to this, like being on a, perhaps of the pro society side of that particular divide. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I think, um, and very much sort of somebody who's repressed and inhibited, somebody who's living primarily through the superego. Talk, talk um, about what that means to you, because obviously the, the simple construction of the Freud ego, superego, uh, perhaps you're talking beyond that. Yeah, uh, the superego is sort of a part of a part of the ego that's turned against itself. A part of, I mean, the ego is all about getting satisfaction from the outer world, um, reality principle. The superego is an internal part of the ego that gets its satisfaction from frustrating the rest of the ego. So, so uh, pa patriotism. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, religious self-abnegation, um, subordination to a cause, self-sacrifice. Right, work ethic. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, interesting. So, onward. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what we find in uh, anarchist movements and autonomous movements at their best is we find a kind of social world that is not relying on what are generally... Uh, I mean, there's this discussion in sociology, there's all kinds of theories about how societies work and what is and isn't possible. But there's this, there's this really old distinction that you will still find flying around between Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft, which is roughly community and organisation. Um, community being a, a usually an ascriptive 
social order where people are assigned roles and the community has a, 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 a sense of normativity, a sense of what's normal, what's required that is imposed on everyone through their ascribed roles. An organization is a formal structure which has more form. It's, it's more individualistic in that it's based on contract. It's based on rules and law and so on. Right, the choice of the matter. Yeah, it's kind of choice of two kinds of two kinds of spook-based organization, really. But then you have this sort of third type, which was theorized by some people who are criticizing this, called the bond. Now, the idea of the bond is that there is this third form of social organization that doesn't rely either on normativity or on this kind of organizational contracts and rules and so on. Um, it relies on an imminent connection which is established primarily, uh, primarily an emotional connection, and it's established primarily through action in common, uh, an event or a ritual or a practice that the group have in common that then brings the people together, feeling they're part of a group who are united by or in relation to this, uh, this practice or event. And this is a German uh, word, right? Yep. Uh, Bund, I think, just means like a group, a league. But, but there's something like a Bund uprising or, uh, for some yeah. reason, the Beer Hall Riot era seems like it, there's yep. something that's tickling my mind that has the term Bund in it. But yeah. Okay, go on. Uh, it, it appears in organization names. There's a, a Jewish socialist organization called the Bund ah, okay. uh, in the early 20th there century. Is. There it is. Um, but you also find it sort of on the end of these German agglomerative words sometimes. Okay. Um, but yeah... I'm saying basically a bond doesn't have, it doesn't have normativity. It has minimum of formal organization, if any. By normativity, I'm kind of meaning this idea that we have norms which make the world predictable. And yeah. there's something that's socially acceptable that you have to conform to. And you have a duty to conform to it, which I think is different from kind of having an ethos or an ethic or values or an idea of virtue. And I think the way this has worked in practice in, uh, uh, in anarchist and, and autonomous movements is um, often the, the big events or the protest mobilizations, things like eco camps in the 80s and 90s, things like the summit protests in late 90s, early 2000s, uh, the squatting scene and the big street protests and clashes that can happen around that. Uh, something like Greece in 2000, you know, the big uprising in Greece. Sure. This actually, kind of thing. Actually, I want, to, I want to get precise here because, you know, really what you're talking about is the affinity group and the affinity group model yep. and the different yep. variations on it. But yep. that model, especially in the North American context, has pretty much ended. Um, mm -hmm. By and large, you know, the, along with the code word security culture has been a, mm -hmm. a, a largely a dissolution of the of anything that even looks like a, a bond that, that, yeah. that when, when we do an, an action on the ground nowadays, we do it as a series of um, uh, whatever singularities. And yeah. it seems to me like the theoretical distinction here has to do with this attempt to move us in the direction of the French and especially mm -hmm. the, the thinkers around the invisible committee and their idea of quote unquote friendship. So I'm curious mm -hmm. as to as to where you would draw the line between an anarchist position, perhaps around the Bund, and this new autonomous type position around the friend. 
Uh, I think they're actually probably quite similar in that key dimension. I mean, what I've read of the Invisible Committee stuff, um, when they talk about the commune, they're again talking about something which is where the, the, the friendship, the affinity is produced in practice. Um, it's not necessarily something that's produced through an organization. Sure. But, I'm, I'm, actually, yeah, I'm, actually, I'm actually saying that I'm, I think it might be a fourth form. Yeah. I think there are different forms of... I, I think it's possibly a different form of the bum, but you may be right that it's a fourth, fourth type. I think there's probably a reason. I mean, I get the impression that possibly the type of uh, anarchist and autonomous organisation that was about sort of 15 years ago and was very strong then has maybe gone into decline because of the difficulty of kind of generating and sustaining the type of uh, sort of large-scale sort of temporary autonomous zone-like events that maybe is what sustain that. I mean, I, I mean, just to speak to this, you know, a bit more in depth, I yeah. feel like there was an incident here in the U.S. that really showed the weakness of the affinity mm. group, and this has to do with the fact that in the U.S. context, what we call the Green Scare yeah. was largely fed by the fact that this person who had a personal uh, moral weakness, i.e. they were a drug addict, uh, basically flipped on their comrades and then wore a mic uh, to hang out with them. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's useful to compare this in the U.K. context mm -hmm. to, to Mark Kennedy or Mark Stone, yeah. who, yeah. you know, obviously also had a personal weakness, which I, mm -hmm. I guess I would, I would take a stab at saying it was the ladies. And um, uh, and and you know did something very similar where where a lot of yeah. people's information was shared and, and I feel like somewhere in there was uh, was built in the end of the affinity group. Yeah, um, he was actually an undercover cop who was yeah, being yeah. employed by a sort of special operations um, special demonstration squad and had been sent in to infiltrate and was eventually caught. No, but, uh, but the, yeah, we, the point the point I'm making is that his personal failings is probably why he yeah. could continue doing it rather than that he loved his yeah. job so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we also have, I mean, we had a situation here, we had a massive crackdown on the animal rights movement not long before the Green Scare happened or around the same time. Right. The um, is that the Gandalf trial or something else? No, the, um, the the Shack trials, late two ah. thousands. I think a bit after the Green Scare, actually. Yeah. Um, but Shack was pretty much destroyed, and up until then, they'd been an inspiration for a lot of the other direct action that was going on. Yep. But it's also partly generational. I think the the people who'd grown up in the, uh, you know, the generations of the eighties and nineties, and then the people who'd uh, sort of become active during that big summit protest wave were getting older and I think for a lot of them kind of occupying the, the, the 2011 stuff was probably their last big movement and the generation who are taking over now are people who've grown up in this sort of very securitized post 9-11 context they have a very different relationship to themselves the system and each other the ideas that anarchism yeah the idea that anarchism is based on and to the older generations and they seem to have this kind of fetish of security in this sense, this, this kind of safe space of stuff. And, but at the same time, to be a lot more open to things like social media and constant self-exposure and self-branding and so on. And that really is, you know, that doesn't fit well with the affinity model or DIY politics or social centers or the things that had been done. So they're really kind of transforming everything into their way of doing it or going off in a different way. I think that's really what shifted. 
but yeah, when Kennedy was exposed, um, the um, the network in his local town, a lot of other people then kind of burnt out or dropped out, or um, you know, it, it did have yeah, it did have a big disruptive effect. Well, uh, and, and really, the, what I'm trying to tease out here, which you know, obviously you're on the same page, is that I I, I see that this that this gap that we're talking about, you know, between these. Um, uh, like wh- where you're talking about the bond, I think that this this friendship category is also a place that I at least want to explore because I actually think yeah. a lot of uh, there's been a lot of pain in it, but that hasn't been explored mm-hmm. that much. And then this we're now talking about yet a third category, which I would describe mm-hmm. myself as something having to do with the internet in this generation mm-hmm. of people who weren't raised hanging out on a street corner with their with their buds, and then it naturally mm-hmm. turned into a you know something political that instead. Yeah. Instead, the new generation of people have basically their first exposure to other human being people is is via politics on the internet. Yeah, and that is increasingly what's happening. And initially, that took uh, quite an anarchic form. You had things like anonymous. You had before that kind of other hacktivist groups and things mm-hmm. like indie media. But I think as it's gone on, it's increasingly become. Uh, I mean, the way uh, social media in particular is structured, and social media is relatively recent, sort of really starts to grow in the late 2000s. There's a tendency for people to cluster in very densely, um, densely clustered networks in which they're clustered with other people who share their beliefs and interests. And they tend to share information, points of view, and social pressure, which reproduces and even kind of radicalizes and polarizes those particular views and interests. And I think it's in that context, really, you get a very different style of politics of this almost micro-nationalism of um, different kind of groups and factions, whether that be identity politics, whether that be alt-right and ultra-nationalism, whether that be people with very intense political loyalties, like we've got a newly emergent kind of uh, traditional left, uh, sort of socialist left, who've also got that kind of structure. And it seems to be structured into the social media that the community takes this particular form of there is very strong, what Jean-Paul Sartre used to call fraternity terror. There is this relationship where you commit to the group. Uh, uh, okay. You commit to the group as, by committing to the group, you are committing to do your part in the group, to sure. uphold the group norms. To This is, this is gang logic. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't, you're out. And it worst case scenario, if you don't, you're dead. But right. usually these days, it's like you're out of the group, you're shunned, you're ostracized, or yeah. you're banned. You know. Well, well and, that, and that does bring us around to what people's modern experience is, yeah. which is that more and more social categories seem to be taking on these characteristics. So why yeah. do you think that that's the case? And, and how uh, related back to Sartre, because that, that's interesting, and yeah. I haven't heard that before. Yep. In Sartre's theory, basically, we start out in seriality, which is like atomization, alienation. Everyone's a separate person. The relationship to the other is competition or is being one of a series, like people queuing for a bus. A fused group, which is basically the same thing as a bond, happens when uh, a group comes together for something in common uh, in relation to an object or a project or an immediate threat. Uh, Sartre's example is the storming of the Bastille. So a a big uprising would be an example of this. But the problem with that is that it's somewhat fleeting and it breaks down when you've lost that kind of immediate focus. 
And the way people try to keep organizations going, obviously he's got the French and the Russian revolutions in mind here, is by forming more rigid organizations, which then attempt to enforce loyalty to the group norms through taking an oath or taking a pledge, making a commitment. You join the party and you have the party commitment. You know, the party, you, you have to sell the paper so many times a week and whatever. Sure. And when you do that, you get this fraternity terror. Now, it eventually evolves through two others. So there's the organization, then there's the institution, which are different, but that, that doesn't really matter that much. What I think we've undergone is this process of, you know, anarchism and autonomous movements and identity-based movements, really, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, of really fused group type. And they slip towards pledged group type, I think, partly as a result of social media, partly as a result of scarcity in the social context, partly as a result of movement defeat and difficulty producing. I mean, the fused groups are really held together by those emotions. You know, you, you have those big events, you have powerful emotion, you know, exhilaration and empowerment and this feeling you can do things that you couldn't do before. And that really is what holds the movement together. But then when you get this big kind of counterinsurgency wave and suddenly people start feeling like you can't do that anymore, you know, you're not getting those emotions anymore. And the new generation coming up, I think, have never had them. Sure. And other people have kind of had them, but they've burnt out. You know, they've been traumatized by repression or they've just, you know, it's too long since they've had their big event. It's lost that inspiring force, that, that glue of the social movement has come apart. Actually, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts. You know, of course, when we have this conversation in the U.S., it entirely mm. hinders around the failures and the defeats since Occupy. Yeah. But you didn't really have a parallel to the Occupy movement. What you had instead yeah. at that time was literally a month of social unrest. Yep. Uh, can you talk, uh, had, about, talk uh, about what the consequences of that were? Yeah, I mean, the British movement had had, there had been a wave of militancy in the 80s and 90s, deriving from Thatcher imposing neoliberalism. That had led initially to a lot of labour revolt. Then there was a big green movement. There was a huge eco-camps wave in the 90s. And then Britain had its kind of little bit of the summit protest wave with J18 in 1999. Sure. Right. That wave kind of fizzled out around about 2003-ish. But what we then had was the Iraq war. And there was a massive, massive demonstration, hundreds of thousands of people against the Iraq war. Not that much direct action. They did the RAF Fairford was occupied at one point, but mostly sort of just huge marches. And the government just ignored it and ignored public opinion and ignored expert advice and ignored... Uh, legal complications and ignored media hostility and just went ahead regardless. And I think the effect that had is, you know, if we can get hundreds of thousands out, we can get this really sympathetic environment and it does no good, you know, what's the point? And the movement just started fizzling out of that after that. Now, I think part of the reason that nothing happened is that there was not enough action around it. Sure. You know, it was, it was just, uh, there were a lot of people on the streets, but there, there wasn't any real threat to the government, so they could just ignore it. But the, the movement then kind of dwindles. It You then see kind of the shack model comes into fashion and you have uh, sort of small-scale groups carrying out actions um, ranging in the degree of militancy, but something like that kind of uh, Italian affinity group model. And that kind of starts to fizzle out with the, when, when shack is destroyed in the late 2000s. And then at just that point, you have this kind of social crisis, which I think, by the way, is stemming from, you know, 2008 financial crash 
And up until then, the poorer and middling groups had been kind of treading water. People weren't getting any better off. You didn't really have a chance of a good life, but you could survive. And after that, it really became increasingly difficult for people. 2011, there was that huge wave of, uh, it was actually only about four or five days, but a huge wave of street revolt, which really there was very little anarchist or activist involvement in. This was coming from marginalized communities, coming from working class people. I just happen to Um, know people in Brixton who very much mm -hmm. felt like anarchists were involved. Yeah, um, quite possibly on the ground then. Um, but, but you yeah. didn't feel like there was enough there to, to for there to be a large feeling because of course it kind yeah. of prefigured our Black Lives Matter movement here yep. in the States because it was about police violence yep a very similar phenomenon in that sense um, wasn't really a movement it was more kind of um, eruption yeah eruption over a few days it kind of starts in this one area in London where uh, the guy had been killed, uh, basically assassinated by the police. And then uh, the police were mistreating people who were protesting against it. And it erupts in this area, then spreads to the rest of London, then to the rest of the UK. But I got the feeling, I mean, I don't know the dynamics in London so well, but other parts of the UK it just took people so much by surprise that people just didn't really have a time to respond. And uh, it was kind Especially of over before. Right. Yeah. Uh, Occupy also happened on a very small scale. There was a lot going on around. There'd been some very militant student protests in 2010 to 11 as well. Tory party headquarters was occupied and, you know, this kind of thing. But it all kind of, I think what really happened is the government cracked down really hard after that wave of unrest and started giving out draconian sentences. And that kind of put the lid on it for the time being. Um, And nothing after that seems to have been all that. There's been little kind of, Upsurges. The uh, the anonymous marches on fifth uh, uh, of November are always a bit. Um, some of those have, uh, have have been quite interesting, but there's not a huge amount goes on. Um, well, obviously, th- th- this is a, a useful time since we were talking about 2008, and yeah. there's perhaps been a malaise in the UK since yeah. then. This is a good time to talk about neoliberalism and the impact yeah. of, of neoliberalism on the topics of exclusion, because it does seem to relate yeah. back to the, te- to the talk about the liberal yeah. subject. Yeah, and of course, neoliberalism has effects on like, anarchists and activists the same as it does on everyone else. Uh, and one of the things it has done is undercut both sort of some of the routes into anarchism, um, particularly sort of it's a lot harder to live on benefits now. It's a lot harder to be a student and be politically active. It's a lot harder to have kind of temporary part time work and not be massively overworked by it. But I think in general, the climate is based on neoliberalism is based on generalized anxiety and the source of a lot of that things, I mean, basically, if people are living by kind of active desire, if people are living by, uh, by the things they want and the things they feel, capitalism and the state are not going to be sustainable. So uh-huh. capitalism and the state have to find ways to decompose, block, stop those kinds of feelings. And it varies over time what they do. In Fordism, it was kind of sort of monotony. It was... Um, these sort of very entrenched institutions that didn't seem escapable. Um, In neoliberalism, I I think basically 
Fordism broke down with the uh, the autonomist waves of 60s and 70s, the, the flight from the workplace, refusal of work, uh, you know, um, dropout culture. People started to escape from the factory as a site of work and the education system and so on. Capitalism has tried to deal with that by sort of bringing itself out into the rest of society, turning it into one big social factory and closing and controlling all society. But the other thing I think it's done is try to undercut that level of kind of minimum guarantee, which lets people drop out without immediately coming up against survival problems. And that's that's how it's undermined the activism of that period. You know, I, think, I, I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to dwell too much on yeah. on uh, living in the UK, but yeah. obviously the the big counter argument to these to, to this conversation is mm. the fact that uh, uh, the Brexit is the way in which the UK is fighting back yeah. against neoliberalism, just like here in the US, of course, that Trumpism is the way in which yeah. we're, we're fighting back against neoliberalism. Yeah. neoliberalism. Does that feel comfortable to you, or does that feel yes. ridiculous? Yes, that's exactly what happened, what's happening, and in France it's Le Pen, and in other places it's this kind of right-wing populism in a lot of places. It's a slightly different constituency. The people you would get in autonomous social movements tend to be uh, there's a BBC survey uses the term uh, emergent service worker. These are people who are kind of on the lowest rungs of the service economy, the new economy, tend to be universally, uh, university educated or at least kind of um, educated to some degree, tend to be sort of involved in the new economy, tend to live in cities where there's a little bit going on. The people who are into Brexit and things like that tend to be the people who were... Uh, part of the, um, they, they were relatively included under Fordism, but sure. they've really been hurt by the transition to the so-called new economy. Right. These are people who live often in small industrial, post-industrial cities, cities that used to have industry that has been run down because the country's moving towards competing in a global economy, or sometimes also rural areas. Uh, it's people, traditional working class people who are manual workers who haven't got the education to work in the service economy, uh, but the jobs have been taken away as the industries have been taken away to China and places like that. Um, obviously, our, 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 cult, our society is a bit more racialized. Yep. We refer to these people as the, what, as the remnants of the white working class. Yep, that's exactly who we're on about. Uh, and it's the same phenomenon as this term France, they call France Peripherique. The, the peripheral France, they're the people in the towns that are just too small to be part of the global economy. Britain people tend to say sort of the um, the north of the, the north of England, although it's not just the north of England, but sure. uh, sort of ex-industrial. But basically, London is London is booming because it's a global city. The rest of the UK is kind of left behind. But the dynamics are really complicated because you've got regional nationalisms, you've got sort of little development hubs, other areas, you've got. Um, certain social groups that are very conservative anyway. But yeah, so let's, so let's, turn, let's turn this around back into a conversation around exclusion yeah. in the anarchist space, because obviously it does seem like a monkey do monkey, monkey see monkey do problem where, yeah. uh, where we're not exactly innovating at this moment, yeah. where the, what, what we call in the U S call out culture, identity politics seems to be chasing the dog. And so let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, 
Um, what I'd like to say first about that is I think there are these shifts within neoliberalism which are based on exclusion and threat of exclusion as what forces people, what normalizes the labor capital relation for those people who are included. And what I mean by this is people are treated as disposable and people can be arbitrarily fired or punished and excluded from that kind of layer of people who are included and exploited on very little basis. And this is quite different from Fordism, which had near full employment and which had things like welfare state. And you see this series of practices. Basically, we're under an obligation to be communicable in order to be employable and so on. But we don't have a right to be communicable. We don't have a right to be included. That's something we have to earn as a privilege that can be taken away. And you see yeah, these practices. Yeah. So you see everything from like capital will disinvest, you know, will disinvest in Greece because they've had a revolt or because they're not paying their debts back. will disinvest in swathes of Africa, forcibly delink. Workers who don't behave as they're supposed to will be fired. Kids will be kicked out of school. Social services will be cut off. Areas will be occupied, put on lockdown. Um, people will be put in destitution, just not have any money at all. Uh, prisoners get put in solitary confinement. You know, these kinds of regimes like Supermax and Guantanamo, this is really kind of social death, cutting people off from communicability. And this is hitting particularly the, the sort of exclude the, the surplus population, the people who don't have, don't have jobs in the economy at all. And this is what's causing revolts like the Arab Spring. And it has in it this kind of logic of killing people. I've seen it called democide, killing people by letting them die by taking away the basis for them to survive in a context where the system is monopolizing the, the basis to survive and making it as hard as it can for someone to live outside it. At the same time, telling people there's no outside pretending to be sort of the social totality, which really it isn't, but it passes itself off as, right? Okay. So again, okay. I, I, I want to stay focused on the, on the micro-politics of this yep. rather than the macro, because I, I mean, the, the one thing I am enjoying about this is that it's very unusual in the U.S. context for us yep. to link neoliberalism to capitalism and to yep. explicitly capitalist social relationships yep. because identity politics is much more the lingua franca here in the yeah. U.S. context. But yeah, are, I know. But, but, just, but, but to put it more bluntly, what you are saying is that to the extent to which, well, I guess, are you comfortable with the term social capital? Do you like that term? Do you think it's useful? I suppose we can use it. It's, it's a bit dubious, but yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I don't love it, but I guess mm. the, the idea, yeah. or at least the political parallel that we're seeing, is that there are particular people who, who seem to have control over modes of, of conversation or modes mm. of thought who are attempting to constrain... Uh, people or, or, or at least harness the political energies around what liberation would look like yep. in, in a way that looks very similar to what would happen if they were, in fact, capitalist classes yep. owning a limited resource. The, the problem, yep. of course, is that they're not. Yeah. Um, in a sense, they are. I mean, I'm unsure myself how far this goes. There is this kind of commodification and artificial scarcity around sort of social validation, attention, because, of course, there's so much information now. You know, people competing for attention and trying to get attention, trying to get validated. To what extent that's, that's really commodified and an aspect of capital, to what extent it's something capital's trying to bring in. But certainly that's how people experience it, I think, a lot of people. And it's tied in with survival. 
you know, your ability to be visible, to be validated, to be, um, to have social capital, to have networks, to have uh, recognition as, as somebody who counts, somebody whose life matters, is absolutely vital to, uh, to being, a, being one of the people who gets selected for and survives rather than one of the ones who gets sort of democided or forcibly delinked out. So there's that competition as to who gets included, and that's happening at every level from kind of the very top, you know, the stockbrokers, the CEOs, the politicians, right the way down to, you know, the struggle to survive in, in gangs and among homeless people and the struggle to be recognized as a benefit claimant, not have your benefits cut off, this kind of thing. And this has got into the social ethos on such a level that it is being brought into, I think, anarchist spaces, I think other kinds of horizontal, decentered spaces, I think also left spaces and things like universities, it's been in for a while. Um, there's these tricks and dynamics that come up. First off, you have this constant horizontal policing, which I think is initially introduced by neoliberalism as a way, you know, neoliberal states as a way of cutting down on policing resources by forcing people to, you know, forcing, for example, pubs, football clubs and so on to police their own users. That gets yeah. brought over by people like identity politicians as the community should be enforcing against racism, mm -hmm. etc. Right? right. Then we have the idea that the state isn't able to provide security anymore. This isn't Fordism. So it's providing an illusion of safety based on exposing other people to greater risk, supposedly for the protection of the, the supposedly privileged, which in fact is not providing them with protection, but it is providing them with validation and a sense that the state cares about them, right? This is basically a, an assertion you're making post-terrorism. Yep. In other words, the, the, state, the state can no longer be seen as, as protecting people, be, and that's yep. evidenced by attacks in London, yeah. attacks in all you know in, in the met different metropoles yeah. all over the world yeah also the fact that people don't have stable jobs right the fact that people I, don't have welfare rights this kind of thing as well yeah i will say in the u.s context you know we really haven't had uh since 9 11 we haven't yeah. really had I, I mean what's strange is how cognitively we disassociate the mass shooting from, from yeah. terrorism because one would yeah. think that uh, one could be terrified of a mass shooter yeah. but um but there is a, a strange disconnect on this level where, mm -hmm. you know, again, this is sort of like an Adam Curtis point where he talks about how politicians are managers of the chaos that mm -hmm. they're benefiting from in the particular way that they are. But I think that you are yeah. uh, uh, trying to turn this in a different direction to talk explicitly yep. about exclusion in our spaces. So continue. Yep. I think the identity politicians are basically doing a Me Too on this. I know we have a Me Too campaign at the moment, which means something else. But I think we're getting Me Too securitization. I think sure. we're getting, like, if you're going to do this to stop terrorists from killing, you know, shoppers in New York or whatever, you should also be doing the same thing to the same extent with the same extensiveness and the same oh. overreach in relation to rape, in relation to yes. black people being murdered, you know. I think fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we have two theories, I think, that are linked to this. One is broken windows theory or order maintenance policing, sure. which appeared in the 80s. And it's this idea you try to prevent serious gang-related crimes such as murder and serious crime in general by enforcing you know, zero tolerance on petty so-called quality of life offences. Things that aren't even really crimes like loitering in the street and trespass yeah. and graffiti and yeah, broken windows. Another is conveyor belt theory, 
which has been the dominant kind of counterinsurgency theory since 9-11, which is the idea that people become uh, you know, terrorists or insurgents on the basis of becoming gradually radicalized, on the basis of um, exposure to a, a, something like a deviant career, exposure to increasing degrees of, uh, of extremity of their views and actions. And attempting to cut that off by cracking down on the process that convey about. So, for example, banning glorification of terrorism, banning uh, terrorist content on social media, banning ideas that are not themselves terrorists but might lead to that later, banning preparatory acts, banning association. And this has been going on really since 9-11. And something like... Sorry. So, so the the um, the modern way in which this is being talked about within our circles is called no platforming. Yep. I mean, no platforming. I think originated as a tactic specifically about against violent neo-Nazi organisations that would physically control territories, right. and it's been expanded to cover anybody who is deemed to have said or done something oppressive by the standards of whoever is doing it. Yeah. And in Britain, at least, this has actually evolved through, begins against Nazis as far back, I think, as the 70s, um, gets expanded for use against radical Islamists as part of the state prevent strategy in the mid 2000s, often with involvement of the student left, uh, who were often in with Blairism and of feminist gay rights and uh, Jewish groups. Um, on the basis that Islamists are often homophobic, anti-Semitic, and sexist. Sure. So this was used to shut down radical Islamist speakers as the next stage from the Nazis, and then it's kind of gone from there to, uh, you know, initially to other racists, pick-up artists, misogynists, etc., and then gradually to, you know, somebody who said the wrong thing about the Julian Assange case, or somebody who has got a, an outstanding accusation against them that they're considered not to have dealt with properly. And... It's yeah, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how familiar yeah. you are with the controversy around Atasa. Yeah. But essentially, Atasa has been referred to as a neo-fascist group because yeah. they have taken claim for killing people, yeah. uh, and they've used certain terms like wimp. They've because they've killed a woman, they've used the term femicide, and so mm. that that has been expanded to be uh, sort of a fascist, a fascistic. Yeah sort of modality, and so therefore by publishing Atasa or by, by publishing anything associated with ITS, we have been sort of uh, plat- uh, argued against for, for platforming fascism. Yep. Um, this is the way this kind of drift has happened. Yeah. Um, I think the drift also involves this kind of, the rules become more and more vague as time goes on. I mean, the, the sure. terrorism stuff is already vague. Yes. All this sort of harassment, antisocial behavior, uh, uh, and now this kind of view of oppression that you get in identity politics. It's not just you must not vet break this rule. It's you must not break this rule that is not really that defined as to what breaking it would be. And if I say right. you've broken it, that means you've broken it. But yeah. you can't know in advance. And that creates this almost, you know, classical totalitarianism relied on this system where, again, they had rules which were vague, they had rules which were broad, they had rules which you had to break in order to not break other rules. (laughs) Sure, sure. In order to produce, live up to your production quota and not fulfill of that rule, you had to break about six other rules, which also happens in modern workplaces, by the way. And as a result of this, basically everyone relies on the discretion of the power holder 
to turn a blind eye to the rules they're breaking or to make these discretionary grey area judgments in their direction, which leads to massive discretionary kind of punishment by process, managerial bullying, you know, huge kind of power to just kind of blackmail people. But this is at the heart of of policing mentalities from day one. Yeah. Um, An anarchist doesn't have a critique of this. They're not an anarchist, basically. Yeah. Um, it's always been going on. I think it's probably been intensified. And I say this horizontal policing has, has really this sort of attempt to conscript the civilian population into acting as unpaid police under threat of being held indirectly responsible or liable for something someone else has done that they failed to prevent or failed to report. That, I think, has been brought over into anarchist spaces and this is really quite new. This has only really been happening in Britain for the last perhaps three or four years. Hmm. Up until then, it was like anarchist spaces. This does not happen. It, it happens in Blairite space, you know, the, the third way, what would be like our sure. versus Clinton. But it was really like anarchism doesn't do this. It's only strangely enough after the Blairites are out of power and then this hmm. wave of 2011 fizzles out, you then start to get um, people bringing this into anarchist spaces and they're often, I say, they're quite often younger people and they're quite often right. people who've grown up with this idea, you know, security matters more than freedom. I'm not safe. There's all these threats around me and all these little things that threaten me are actually little sort of precursors or elements of these huge things. So we have to have zero tolerance on, uh, you know, zero tolerance on using bad words because there isn't a difference really between using bad words and killing someone or raping someone. Sorry. What's to be done? What we really need to do is find a way to revive those types of affect that are the ones that underpin the, 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 uh, what I was calling the bonds, or or maybe we'll say the the friendship or whatever singularity. We need to find ways to reconnect people on the basis of, uh, first off, making that step of, of rejecting the system, which... I don't think politics doesn't do. It's all competition within the system. Mm. Um, secondly, of kind of, we need we need this tolerance of low level nuisance and the fact that you know we're around people who are different from us, who've got their own will, who've had different lives. That's going to be sometimes. People aren't always going to understand one another. People are going to say things that are insensitive. People aren't going to have the same norms. And we need to develop networks of dispersed power. We need this kind of web of rhizomes where people are quite happy to maybe some people will have to group with people who, uh, you know, share their particular set of triggers and, uh, and, and, uh, and have to avoid certain things. But we're able to connect those groups without it turning into an antagonistic competition of you have to do it exactly my way or else you're racist, you're sexist. But it does seem like you're referring to uh, what I would call an existential leap. Yeah. And, and uh, I guess speak to your thoughts as to how that would How happen. you do it. Yeah. Um, I think what's holding this together, I mean, if you look at what happened last time, because in some ways we're living through this rerun of the 30s. Okay. We're living yeah. through a rerun That's of like, what happened to the left. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, what happened basically, if you look at sort of the 1920s, you'd got this huge 
sort of outpouring of everything from sort of council communism, anarcho-syndicalism, little Nietzschean projects going on, dropout culture, theosophy, all these kinds of things. And then it all kind of gets, well, a lot of it gets closed down and put into Stalinism. And that then becomes the big thing. You're a closed-minded Stalinist, or you're a Nazi, or you're a social democrat, which also becomes increasingly closed. And the anarchists either get kind of shunted out, killed... They get clobbered, yeah, they get clobbered one side or the other. Sure. Um, What eventually brings this down is when we get to the 60s and we start to have, we've got people who've been growing up under this system who are like, actually, this is, this is not very nice. You know, this is not, this is existentially... Sucks. Sucks. <laughs> and who start trying to do something different. It's a different context to now. I mean, we're talking maybe the context we'll be in in 20 years' time, 30 years' time might be like that, but... But you're, you're saying that basically all the pressure and the, and the constraint at some point just push the kids into saying fuck this yeah. and and rejecting the the squares and the parents yeah i think it may be actually when they were getting the kind of the success you know when they were when they were able to get the american dream and they're like actually it's not that brilliant um but i think probably i mean i'm i'm a bit lost of the way, as to the way to do it now we need to find a way to make people basically less anxious and less hypersensitive about other people and we I mean, need I, to do that sorry i i do kind of think a little bit about the the you know at the end of the of world war Two, you know mm. people who are paying attention to the extent to which perhaps we're paying attention today must have been miserable because basically the quote-unquote victory that happened mm. you know <laughs> was no ideological victory it was just mm. a, a, a victory of illusion and you know the, the the fact that so much of the of the German machine you know got taken up by by the you know the prominent powers of the time, you know just and and, and that the, the the thinking did not clarify itself for another twenty years. Yeah, I mean that and and that is a terrifying lesson to to take away from today when mm-hmm. it does feel like these modes of thought that we're talking about seem extremely dominant, yeah. extremely like uh, like that they, they've rationalized all t- all comers. Yeah, that is a, a, another element of it. I think people who've lived through, first off, you're coming out of World War II, um, the narrative of progress has been shattered because of the Holocaust. Um, and, and the bomb, and the bomb. Yeah, and, yeah, the atomic bomb. And you're in this Cold War that never seems to end. Um, communism then gets kind of discredited when, you know, the secret speech and Stalin's crimes get admitted. That increasingly sort of undermines that closure that the Stalinists built um, so yeah you see that kind of opening in that period and then sort of the rejection of Nazism within Europe then empowers anti-colonialism that's one of the things that there's a definite relationship there um, I mean I guess the, the other part of that relationship though that is worth mentioning is that it became more and more difficult to manage resources from so far away yeah. Um, as the world got smaller, yeah. and that's actually a thing that I don't think we're talking about much in this conversation, which is the fact that the the Western colonial powers that you know, as it so happens, are still yeah. in charge. Yeah. Um, like, you know, what does the next 
uh, yeah. anti-colonial struggle look like, and, and yeah. you know, to what extent is there a periphery that's no longer being maintained particularly well? Yeah. And you know, one place that isn't happening is is Africa, as an yeah. example. You know, yeah. right now Africa is being being pulled in in you know three or four different directions by all the resource extraction happening yeah. there. And 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 it it sort of seems like this that that part of this conversation, which is a meta conversation about capitalism, yeah. does seem pretty different than what we're talking yeah. about in the context of exclusion in the anarchist space. Yeah. But I'm curious if, as a as a way to close this, yeah. you could connect them and 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 do a wrap up. Yeah. Um, obviously, there is this huge. I mean. What I referred to earlier as the surplus population or the excluded is this massive layer of, I'm not sure if it's a majority or a large minority, but this is a lot of people. But oh, there's I not. Think it's a, I think it's a majority of the planet. Yeah. Um, there's not that many of them in the global north, and they don't look the way that either the traditional left or the identity politicians expect them to look. Yeah. And so there's not actually been that much anarchist work done with them. But we have seen coming from those groups themselves some very anarchistic projects. Uh, we might refer to the Zapatistas, we might refer to El Alto in Bolivia, this city that is basically self-managed by community assemblies. We might refer to uh, the West Papuan struggle, um, service delivery protests in South Africa. There's so many examples and it's like a lot of people haven't heard of these things or, or they have heard of these things, but only marginally. But the significance is not really understood because it gets put in these narratives of sort of either traditional left or, or identity mm -hmm. politics, which really it isn't. Um, there is a possibility. I mean, there's a couple of ways the global system could go from here. It's at a downturn of a downturn. I'm, I'm not going to try and explain congratulative wave theory at the moment, but basically it's in a crisis point where the system is going to have to resource substitute, uh, find a new, new organizing model, a new energy source, um, a new sort of form of technology that's going to be the boom for the next stage if it's going to survive. And it is that question mark at the moment. We don't know if it will survive or not. If it does, what we're going to have is a shift in hegemon because that's generally what happens. It could be China, in which case that old colonial situation's sort of shaken up. China, by the way, Chinese politics has certain characteristics which are in common with new managerialism, third way, and identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, that weird combination of kind of a government that can be extremely repressive but generally lets things tick along. Um, this kind of weird mix of kind of managerial control freakery with performed humility. But it's, it also might just be a diffuse form of power based on global cities all over the world where you just lose center, you know, the centers are just the global cities. But if that doesn't happen, we're going into a dark age. And that actually is good news for anarchists because what it means is we're going to see um, decentralization. We're going to see major structures falling apart or grinding to a halt, localized alternatives reappearing, uh, increase in linguistic diversity, um, we're going to see ruralisation, people moving out of cities rather than into cities. It's basically what happened after the end of the Roman Empire, uh, and it's happened a few times in history in different places. Um, now, if that happens, the potential is going to be, you know, it may be Bolo Bolo was just 50 years too early. Right. Maybe that will be what happens if we have a collapse like that. That's the optimistic version. The pessimistic version yeah. is just, you know, the capitalists will want to hold on, or the states will want to hold on, they'll all end up nuking each other and everyone will die. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's hope not. 
or we get this Chinese centered world economy, we get an upturn and then we go through, at which point we're then looking at something like the 1960s sometime in the fairly, probably within our lifetime. Possibly, yeah. Um, but we will see. I mean, at that point, we're then talking, you know, will 3D printing take off? Will robots take off? Will they, But we'll sort of see new forms of, new forms of protest, new forms of uh, political action emerging based on the new opportunity structure, the new technologies, and so on. Um, but I think at the moment, yeah, one of the one of the most powerful things people can do is looking for. I think looking for ways to relieve anxiety through concrete subsistence strategies, things that actually meet people's needs. Um, trying to find ways to build relationships where people can coexist and relate to one another without having to have this set of norms, just as kind of mutual support. And trying to find ways to relate to the global excluded, who we're really not talking to at the moment. And I think that doesn't mean what the identity politics people are doing. That really is kind of this top 1% or 10% of, of marginalized groups who are sort of making a bid to get into the global elite. We need to be actually finding out what the people are thinking actually in the ghettos themselves or in the shanty towns or in the peasant communities. And I think that may actually be quite different it may be worth thinking about things like, uh, you know, something like uh, a Freirean or a, a Maoist approach. Could we kind of reconfigure that in an anarchist direction? Mm. Uh, it may be worth thinking about, you know, how do we reach informationally people who are maybe illiterate and not connected to the Internet and don't speak English or French or Italian? Um, it may be worth thinking about those kinds of things. There are organizations that have done that. You know, there are, there are churches that have proselytized all over the world. There are, there are nasty right-wing networks like the Islamist movements who have managed to grow in these kinds of marginal communities. Is there a way for anarchism to do that? And if so, what would it look like? Because I don't think it's going to be that kind of, oh, we go there and take leadership from the community and check your privilege, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be about actually introducing them to anarchism. And how do you actually solve some of these problems in an anarchist way? Andy? Yep. Thank you very much for, for your time. It is clear that we need to have some more conversations because I think okay. that, uh, that your voice is desperately needed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.